This week on Writers Inc. We would have to do retreats uh, because between like work in DC and travel and then home life, um, I wasn't married when I wrote the first book, but it was it was just too hectic. I mean, and you know, it's not. I know you you know you try to you know write and get stuff out and then peel it back, but I just couldn't get myself disciplined. So we would take you know three or four day retreats. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. How you doing, J.D.? Hey, man. How you been? Doing all right. Uh, staying busy. What are you working on these days? Uh, I'm trying to solve a, a problem. Um, I, I think I mentioned this on the air before, but I, I set up a relationship with Baker and Taylor, who's a distributor, very similar to Ingram Spark. Um, they, they tend to uh, deliver primarily to libraries um, and, and certain bookstores. Um, and pe- the, the buyers tend to have a preference. You know, they'll go into their either their favorite is either Baker or Taylor or Ingram, but that's where they tend to get their hardcovers from. Um, and I wanted to have a presence in both. So I, I set up a relationship with Baker and Taylor and it's been going awesome. Um, but you've got a copy of um, She Has a Broken Thing Where Our Heart Should Be, right? I do. The, the cover, is, it's, it's meant to be an, an 80s throwback novel. So we made the cover look that way. Um, and the designer did a fantastic job. But one of the things that he did on it is he distressed the cover. So it looks like it's got wrinkles and it's got creases. And you know, it looks like a very worn paperback. Yes. And what's happening is that you know they're ordering cases of these over at Baker and Taylor. And whoever's opening the box is looking at them going, oh, these are damaged. Oh, no. And, and they're shipping them back. Um, so I, I've gotten like four or five cases of books back in, in the last um, week or two, you know, claiming that they're damaged when they're, they're perfectly fine. Um, so I, I had to go back to the designer today because um, at first I went to Baker and Taylor. I was like, hey, can you just let whoever's opening these know what's going on? Um, but there's so many people involved. There's just no way to, to do that. Um, so we had, had to redo the cover a little bit and take all that the, the distress marks off and, and basically give them a nice clean cover, um, which looks cool, too. But it was just you know, Stuart ba- uh, Beige did it. You know, he's a yeah. great designer. Um, and I just I really like the way it looks. So I was a little bit a little bit sad about that. Yeah, um, you know, what's going I, on with you? Yeah, I, I can I can understand that. Like uh, if, when you flip it over, especially the back cover, it looks very authentically distressed. <laughs> so I could see right. like if you're opening, you know, dozens of boxes a day and you're not paying close attention and you just open that up, I could see that being an honest mistake. Yeah, I mean, because he did such a good job making them look distressed. You know, like you, you have to like run your finger across the cover to realize it's not a real crease. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's not not worth cases, you know, coming back. Like I probably have a hundred copies of this book now at my house, and you know, I, I can only give away so many. I've only got so many friends and family, <laughs> um, and, and I don't know what they're doing with them. So you know, if my mom's got three copies, she may not want a fourth. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> so what's what's going on with you? What's going on with your book? Yeah, I'm plugging away on it. Uh, I feel like I'm in a groove right now. Kind of uh, almost hit the midpoint, and I think. Uh, you know, you had, you had asked me um, via email about word count and uh, I haven't really been keeping a tally of it uh, for, the, for the whole project. What I've been trying to do is to write dialogue only 
at somewhere between six and 800 words. That's sort of my target for just the dialogue. So I can go and backfill a lot of the uh, description and narrative and stuff um, outside of that. So I don't know how many total words I have, but I feel like uh, I'm, I'm getting anywhere from five to seven um, chapters or scenes a week uh, doing that. And just been great and keeping up with me. Uh, we, we, we talk through most of the scenes. He gives me pointers. Um, it's kind of fun because I didn't really, uh, I mean, I sent you like the character bios, but you know, like when you, when you sit down and start writing, like other characteristics and mannerisms come out within the drafting process. So it's kind of fun to explore these characters at the same time I'm developing them. Yeah, they, they tend to take on a, a personality, I guess, after a little bit of time. And, and it's funny because in the book I'm writing now, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm writing it in Scrivener. That's where I usually do these things. Um, and I made a little note to myself, like found so-and-so's voice here um, oh, so that yeah. I can go back and, and adjust the, the earlier dialogue because, you know, I, I found a cadence that I really like. And it just, it, you know, all of a sudden this person snapped from being a, a paper kind of character to, to somebody very real. Um, so I just marked that particular place. I, I don't want to go back right now and make adjustments, but you know, before I, I finish up that next draft, I, I, I definitely want to do that. But good, you're, you're definitely trucking right along, right along then. Um, are, are you going for shorter chapters or you have yeah, a chapter I'm, length in mind? I'm, I'm aiming, uh, I, 1500 words is sort of my ideal chapter length. So I figure if okay. I get f anywhere from you know, 40 to 60% dialogue, I can adjust either way to kind of get in the ballpark. It seems like anybody that's writing anything that's action-based or thrillers all seem to be kind of leaning in that direction. Um, you know, Patterson really drilled it home with me when, you know, working with him. I, you know, chapters are typically like around 1,000 to maybe 1,400 words on the, you know, on the long side. Yeah. Um, but I've noticed that even in, in Stephen King and Dean Kuhn's books, like they, you know, King, the way he numbers his chapters, he basically names the chapter and then he has one, you know, part one, part two, part three, part four. And there, there could be 15 or 20 different ones in there. But, you know, they're, they're fairly short at this point, too, if you compare like, um, you know, like the outsider to a book from maybe 15 or 20 years ago for him. Um, he's definitely shortened it up. And same thing with, with Koontz and a lot of the other people that I read. Uh, and I think it just comes back to what we had talked to about before that, you know, people's attention spans are just getting a little bit shorter. Um, and, and it's, it's, you know, same thing with reading. And I think people like, you know, to be able to pick up a book, you know, read for five or 10 minutes, you know, just knock out one quick section and then move on to, to something else in their, in their life. Um, and I know I'm kind of like that, like I'll, you know, read for a couple minutes and, you know, if I'm on a long chapter, you know, sometimes I may put it aside and, and do it later, you know, rather than read it now. Um, just because it's nice to be able to get that little, little snippet. Yeah. I had a reader recently tell me that, they really like the short chapters because it's easy to just keep going like just one more, just one more. Whereas if you're like getting ready to go to bed and the chapters are longer, you might put the book down thinking like, yeah, I don't have enough time. But if they're shorter, you know, people tend to just keep, keep adding, keep reading them. So I don't know, maybe that, maybe that's got something to do with it too, is the, the reader behavior. Yeah. It's just a little bit more digestible, I think with, with the shorter chapters. Yeah. Interesting what you so who said. Who do we have too. on the air tonight? Oh, we got, um, Let's see, who do we have? We have, <laughs> yeah, we have, yeah, uh, gotcha. yeah, you did. I, I was like looking at the wrong file. We have the representative, Tim Ryan, from uh, my state of Ohio, a, uh, a member of House of Representatives. He was a 2020 presidential candidate up until uh, late last year. And he's coming on because he's written two books. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to this guy. Oh boy, po politics. <laughs> um, so, so what are his books about? Are, are his books political or are they about something totally different? Not, well, not, not in a traditional sense. And I think that's why he's an, uh, quite an inter interesting guest. He, okay. 
he has uh, one book on meditation and his uh, other book is on the food system and how nutrition and health are related. So not your typical politician and not the typical uh, book topic that you, that you might find. So I think he's, he's a fascinating guy. I've, I've heard him talk before. Uh, I'm not in his district. I'm, I'm one over, but I know him. I know of him quite well. And, uh, and yeah. And, and uh, so, so the books, the books are quite different. I think he has one with Hay House. I think he uh, might, might have self-published one. Uh, I, I'd have to double check, but um, yeah, fascinating guy. And uh, we don't really um, not, like just not interested in talking politics, more interested in sort of the author and who Tim, what Tim Ryan believes in as a person. So I think it's going to be a good chat. Sounds perfect. Let's go. All right. Why did the wives of the men in Steel Valley need to sweep their porches every day? <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they they lived right across from the, the, the old, uh, steel mills. And this was, before the clean air act and before the clean water act and uh and and probably before the department of uh uh you know the environment or the environmental protection agency and so they you know the the steel mills spewed out all of this uh dust and poison (laughs) and it went on their porch literally they had to they had to sweep their uh, porches off you know a couple times a day when the steel mills were working yeah it's crazy i I think we're about the same age i grew up in pittsburgh and i remember going to my grandparents who lived in munhall right above the the mills and they had a a, a pool and my grandfather would have to sweep the pool two times a day otherwise it would just be covered with black soot at the bottom yeah yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, and you know, it went into the gardens and it went into the food they ate and it was, you know, and uh, we have high cancer rates here or had had for a while and uh you know, and that, now you even the environmental studies are, are showing that it's still in the dirt in a lot of these older industrial cities. So it's still in a lot of ways uh an environmental and health hazard. Yeah, and we're going to we're going to get to that and when we talk about the real food revolution in a minute. Uh, right. th- tell me a little bit about, uh, Kennedy high school and growing up in Warren, uh, being a high school quarterback. Uh, h- how did that kind of shape who you, who you may have became? You know, if I, if I look really looking back, um, I would say that, um, growing up Catholic and, and, and all that came with that and, and playing uh, sports, but especially being a quarterback really shaped a lot of who I am today. Um, and, you know, Kennedy High School was a Catholic school, but it's a very much working class uh, Catholic school. You know, uh, back in the day when, you know, it was it was cheaper to go and the parishes helped fund uh, kids to go to the school. Um, and so, um, it, you know, I'd, wor- I'd go to school. My parents were divorced. My mom worked for the county, you know, uh, guys sitting next to me in class. Their dads worked at steel mills and auto plants and that kind of thing. So very much working class Catholic and very um, not really doctrinaire like people view Catholics today, you know, where it's it's abortion and some of the, you know, gay marriage. And that we we it was a very open, tolerant, um, more aligned with like the social gospel, like you develop a connection with God, you know, do interior work, as I said, in uh uh, my book, uh, the Healing America book, 
you know, I would see my coaches during the school day, like sneaking in and out of the chapel <laughs> and they would go in there and they would get their quiet time and they'd pray the rosary or say their prayers or meditate or whatever it was. So it was very much like contemplative, um, you know, and it was the men, you know, of course you'd see the, the sisters, the nuns going in and out, but to see, you know, your, your football coach from Toledo, Ohio, who's like would kick your ass on the practice field, like go into the chapel and have an interior life was really left a very strong impression. I would go to church and I would see one of the older football coaches kind of tucked to the side of the church and uh, praying the rosary, like during the middle of mass. And so that was not unusual growing up. Uh, And then the quarterback piece was really like um, leadership development, you know, being the guy to bring everybody together willing to take the risks, you know, willing to, you know, take the game over at the end. And, hey, you may be on the front page of the paper for throwing an interception, but, hey, you may win the game too. So, you know, it's worth the risk. And and really learning the value of teamwork, learning the value of bringing people together, recognizing like, you know, one guy who drops a pass, you may have to chew his ass out. Another guy, if you chewed his ass out, you know, he'd cry. So you, you would like, you got to give them a little sugar and like really learning about how to deal with people, how to motivate people, inspire people, that kind of thing really goes back to, um, you know, Kennedy high school and my Catholic education and then the, the, the quarterback piece. Yeah. And in healing America, you talk about how you found meditation, uh, after, after you sort of found it in Catholicism in a way. Uh, so yeah. let, let's talk about that book for a minute. I mean, uh, at what point did you decide, hey, I'm a I'm a politician. Uh, I'm I'm in the, I'm in in the house. I want to write a book on meditation. How, how did you get to that point? <laughs> well, you should have heard my staff when I said <laughs> I'm writing a book, and they said that's terrific. What about? And I said meditation, and they're like, wah wah wah. You know, like, are you crazy? Um, one of them said, you know, you you should write an autobiography. I go autobiography. I'm 35 years old. Like, <laughs> what have I done? You know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I, it, when I was 17, 18, something like that, I was out of school and I had a priest, father Crumley teach me centering prayer, which is a Christian based meditation. And, uh, I learned that and I really loved it. And I did it on and off. Um, and it's basically a mantra based, uh, you know, uh, meditation, a lot like transcendental meditation. They use a Sanskrit word. Uh, this was that you would use love or Jesus or something. And you would just say it over and over again. And then you drop in into some higher form and connect with deeper into your being. So, um, I loved it, but I never, I never, um, I never was disciplined enough to keep doing it. And then I was, you know, I knew about Phil Jackson uh, who was the basketball coach at the time of the Chicago Bulls. And I would watch uh, the Chicago Bulls, and I learned about Phil Jackson using a lot of these techniques with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And they were winning all these games. And then I read his book called Sacred Hoops. And uh, in his book, he had a book that influenced him called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. So I had to go out and get Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. This is, this is the story of my life here. That So that was the journey. And then so my Catholicism, funny you should ask, the way you asked one of the earlier questions is my Catholicism got me down that road. And then it was sports figures who were like 
affirming that road I was going down. And, uh, and that just led to more and more research and more and more kinds of meditation that I flirted on and off with. Um, but yeah, it started with Father Crumley in uh, St. James Parish in Warren, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. And you uh, recently, I say recently, but I think you re-released this and you, you put a different title on it. Can you talk about sort of the evolution of the book and why you felt the timing was right to do that? Yeah, I, I love the title, um, A Mindful Nation. And I, that was the original title. But, you know, from 2000, you know, 11, 12, when I, you know, that book was being written and published and all that, um, to now, uh, it just felt like this is about healing America, you know, that they were so just torn apart. And we see it every day on the news that I felt like healing America really spoke more to, you know, what I was trying to get at. At, with the book than a mindful nation. Um, but I, I love them both, but I just thought it would maybe a little more contemporary and, and fit, fit what's happening better. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I love, I love that both titles, I think they both speak to what meditation is about. And, um, I love you talking in the, about meeting the Dalai Lama. Uh, can, can you just tell me for a minute what, <laughs> what that felt like and sort of what you came away with after that? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, here I am, you know, right. I'm a kid from just outside of Youngstown, Ohio. Right. I'm like with the Dalai Lama, I'm like, how the f did I get here? And I was one of those deals. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so I, you know, I've met all these meditators and they've been meditating 30, 40 years. And so they, they would go to, you know, Tibet and China and India and, you know, all of these different places. And, um, and that, so some of them have a very, very deep and they, they really help bring mindfulness to America. So they have a very long friendship with the Dalai Lama. And so I, I think I was in Wisconsin and the, one of the best, uh, professors there and researchers there, Dr. Richie Davidson, uh, at the University of Madison had an event and the Dalai Lama was there. And the thing I remember most is the way he felt, you know, it's really hard to put into words. You know, you hear about these big spiritual figures and they, he just, you could just feel him. And, and it was unreal. Like the, the a quiet charisma, you know, you like I've met Bill Clinton, I've met Barack Obama you know, uh, I've met Emmanuel Macron, all super high levels of charisma. But there was this uh, another level of really depth that just kind of touched you. And uh, it was amazing. And that's that's what I remember. And coincidentally enough, uh, a few years back, we had Pope Francis in Washington, D.C., and I did, you know, most of his tour, I tried to make as many of them as I, as I could. And he, he had the same thing. It was just like it. And he, I think he spends a couple hours every morning in prayer and meditation too. And it just, just the being is just, just coming out. And you, you, if you're in the way, you're going to feel it. Yeah. That's lovely. It was cool too. I, I will tell you this, I would go to, when I was in DC, I would go across town to do a hot yoga class at my studio in DC. And I was, the Pope was there and I was riding with a cab driver 
and he bring he brought up the pope and i said yeah i went to the mass at catholic university or something he goes it's been the most unbelievable thing. He says, even the cab drivers in town now are being nice to each other, you know, instead of like cutting each other off, they're like, yeah, no, go ahead. You can go ahead of me. He's like, something's going on with the Pope being in town. I said, yeah. well, maybe that extends to the whole city. Who knows? Yeah. That influence, like you said, you can feel it. So I'm sure it does extend outward. Yeah. 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 Well, so let me go back to your staff. So, so, you, so you write this book on meditation. A few years later, you say, hey, guys, I want to write another book. And they're like, great. What's it about? And you say, it's about food. <laughs> yeah. Tell me how that happened. It was That was a little better than was uh, meditation. <laughs> it was a little more down to earth for them. Um, yeah, it just kind of evolved because I was doing all this research on meditation. And, uh, and it was, you know, around stress and how debilitating it was and how it didn't allow your body to heal itself and, uh, and all the rest. And, um, but the other thing that kept popping up in the research was the, was the diet nutrition piece. And, um, so I was like, this is not done yet. Like there's another side of this. And as I got into that book, which really needs an update too now, because it's, uh, there's some things that I've learned since then about regenerative agriculture and stuff that, that aren't in there at the level they need to be in there. But, um, it, uh, it was the it was the other side of the coin um, than than the mindfulness piece, like to really have wellness and well-being that, you know, there are certain things that we need to do and eat and change in our food system, like for ourselves and then brought more broadly into the food system. Very much influenced by guys like Dr. Mark Hyman, Dr. Andrew Weil, um, these these functional medicine doctors, mind body medicine doctors who really you know, boil down and, uh, you know, and it changes the makeup of your body and duh. Right. I mean, like, <laughs> oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's like, how do we get away from this stuff? And so I really wanted to do it from a personal standpoint for people that actually be able to learn a little bit about, I, I don't, I don't fall into the, like the vegan or vegetarian or paleo or like whatever you're at. It's like, there's just certain things that you need to be doing and you got to find out what works for you. Um, and, and then I wanted to push that out into the, the policy piece, obviously being a congressman as to the damage that we're doing to ourselves because of the policies around antibiotics in the food that are going to lead to, you know, uh, antibiotic resistance for us, which is the next big thing. We think the Corona is bad. This thing's coming down the pike uh, as well. The level of pesticides that are oil-based that we've poured onto our, our land and really have destroyed the soil. Um, so really talking about those things and trying to push it more into like urban agriculture. Uh, how do we use our cities that have shrunk to really bring about change and healthy food. And that has an impact on the environment because now you don't have to transport all the food. You can actually grow some uh, and teach our kids with school programs on how to grow food and how to cook food and love to see a kitchen in every school at some point so that we can just learn how to take care of ourselves. And, you know, coincidentally enough, um, I think the coronavirus for a lot of people have given us an opportunity to start learning how to cook again, you know? Uh, so I know we're, 
we're cooking every night here, yeah. you know, and I, I'm in charge of the grill. <laughs> uh, chicken but, wings and ice cream is that what you're serving I'm, every night I'm telling, my wife says we got some chicken that chicken wings and ice cream exactly why well, we were cooking wings the other night on the grill and they were greasy as hell and the, i mean my wife got panicked because the fire was <laughs> i almost burnt my eyebrows off <laughs> well I, you you tell a great story in uh real food revolution about your wife i was wondering if you could talk about how functional medicine and, and Dr. Hyman literally saved her. Can you kind of tell us how that happened? Yeah, she was just not doing well. Um, and she thought it was um, a gluten. And I think she does have some gluten sensitivity. Um, and she just, uh, what, she wasn't doing well. She was okay, but she wasn't healthy. And we wanted to have a baby. We had dated for a long time. And, you know, like most, we, break up, get back together, break up, get back together, one of those deals. And we, you know, we got back together um, for the last time and we immediately got married and, and we wanted to have a baby and um, she just wasn't healthy enough to have a baby. And I had met Mark Hyman at, at, at an event for uh, Ariana Huffington in New York. Again, Oh, Niles, Ohio guy. I'm like, Ariana Huffington, I'm at her house in New York. I'm like, what is this? This is insane. And so we end up going, she invites us to dinner after I end up sitting next to Mark Hyman. And he was telling me what he did. And I thought that's right up my alley. Mentioned my wife. He said, come to, you know, Lenox, Massachusetts, and we'll take care of her. We took her out there. Mark did all these tests, evaluated her stool samples, had a long conversation with her going back to her childhood and uh, he got her on a, a diet and uh, got her some supplements. She was deficient in. And next thing you know, she's putting on weight and getting healthy. And, uh, you know, a year and a half later. Or so, you know, Brady was born and now he's six and healthy and light of our lives. So, you know, that to me, that was like uh, my experiences, like, how do we expand functional medicine? How do we get this out into the world? He then opened up an institute at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Functional Medicine Institute. And so, you know, so now I'm looking, how do we bring this to the VA? How do we bring this to the military? How do we encourage other docs to go into this? So it's not just like turn them and burn them. Like, give me, here's your prescription out the door. It's more like food, meditation, you know, health, wellness, relationships, connectivity, you know, all the, all of the stuff that really, they make you healthy, have keep you healthy. And, but they also have, allow you to enjoy your life, you know? Yeah. I'm, li is, I'm living proof. I see one of Dr. Hyman's doctors at the functional medicine clinic in, in Cleveland here. And, uh, and I, I was re I was chuckling as I was reading that passage in your book, because one of the first questions the doctor asked me was, were you bottle fed or breastfed? <laughs> And yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What's that? How does that even matter? But it does matter. You know, they look at the whole history and, and you're right. Like, you know, once you get that diet locked in, it solves so many problems. Yeah. Yeah. In that, you know, when I ran for president, it was put, one of the biggest frustrations was that we were having a, a conversation about health care, you know, and health insurance, but we weren't having a conversation about health. And, uh, you know, looking back, I, I wish I would have navigated that maybe a little bit better. But um, that was the in essence, I think that's the problem with the American political conversation today. It's like 
we're all concerned about coverage. We're all concerned about cost. And, but yet we're not doing anything that's driving up the cost, you know, that would allow us to free up more money to expand coverage. And that's, that's health. And so this whole idea with the, with the books, whether it's food or the meditation piece is like, and this comes from a lot of the Buddhist teachings that I've learned over the years is like, what's the root cause, you know, and in Buddhism, they'll teach you about the root cause of the suffering. Like everybody's suffering. Why go to the root cause and that these meditations are opportunities to see clearly, um, to, to, um, see delusions and illusions and kind of get through that and, and recognize what the root cause of the suffering is. And so if you take that view to a public policy, um, you know, standpoint, you're going to say, okay, what's the root cause of our health problem? And that two of them are, you know, the food piece and the, just kind of the mental health, mental health promotion piece, stress and anxiety piece. Those are the root causes of mental, a lot of, not all, um, but mental health uh, issues. You know, that to me is really um, uh, an, an important, really, um, you know, guiding light for me when I'm talking about these things. What's the root cause? And if you can build social uh, public policies around clearly defined causes then you can then you can actually address the, the the bigger problems. Yeah, come up with solutions for sure. Come up with solutions, yeah. Yeah. So you're you know, you you've got a wife and kids and dogs and you're you're in Ohio and DC. Uh do you do you have a system for getting your writing done? Do you sort of catch it when you can? do you have a typical writing uh procedure or process? I do. It is uh a little bit unusual. Uh, I have a guy that I write my wrote my two books with Barry Boyce, who uh, started off um, with Shambhala Sun magazine, and then he started uh, Mindful magazine, and has become a very dear friend. And uh, so we would have to do retreats uh, because between like work in D.C. and travel, and then home life, um, I wasn't married when I wrote the first book, but it was it was just too hectic. I mean, and you know, it's not, I know you, you know, you try to, you know, write and get stuff out and then peel it back, but I just couldn't get myself disciplined. So we would take, you know, three or four day retreats where we would, we would find he had friends. I had friends who had homes in the middle of a forest on a lake. My buddy's a grandfather had a place up in uh, San Sever, uh, out 40 miles outside of Montreal. Um, you know, so we would go for three or four days and we would literally do a chapter. Um, we'd do the research. I'd write it, send it to him. He'd begin the editing process of that chapter. And then we'd go do another three day, do chapter two, or we would do, you know, chapter one and chapter two or, you know, that kind of thing, but really break it down. And then we plot it out on the calendar and make sure we had no distractions, no TVs. And we would have, you know, we would go grocery shopping. It was, it was really fun. I mean, we would, it was a lot of work, but we would go grocery shopping when we first got there and wherever we were, we'd buy like local foods, especially when we were doing the food book and, uh, you know, and we'd get some bottles of wine and, uh, maybe a bottle of scotch or something. And, and we would have a nice dinner 
at the end of every night and maybe watch a, a movie, you know, and uh, just kind of chill and get back up the next morning about seven o'clock. We do a meditation uh, in the morning and then kick it back up again. It's pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I like the approach. You're batching, right? You're just taking big chunks out of it instead of stringing it along. And I think that can be really an effective way to write. Yeah, you really get to sit with whatever it is that chapter was. You'd really get to sit with it for a couple of days. And the stuff you wrote, you know, Friday night or Thursday night or whatever, you know, you looked at it on Saturday midday uh, after really chilling out, you know, no, no TV and noise, you know, maybe a movie, but it was just long walks. And so by Saturday or Sunday, you look back at it and you're like, you know, I feel a little bit differently about this now with a little space and a lot of meditation and stuff. And so it, it worked out. Okay. I'm pr- I'm proud of both of those books. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, um, yeah. they're great books. We'll have links in the show notes. I, I have I have one last question for you. Hopefully, this will yeah. be a fun one. Uh, okay. <laughs> you got two books. Uh, yeah. Is the third one in the works? You know, funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> I've really been, I really have been thinking about um, a, a third one. Um, and I'm, I, I'm just writing stuff now, you know, Um me and my wife, we watch TV shows together and she falls asleep earlier than I do. So we're on Peaky Blinders now. We finished Ozark, um, but she'll fall asleep and I'll come down to my office and just a half hour, just just put stuff in the note section on my iPad and, uh, you know, really kind of feel like there's a void in the political system right now between the left and the right. And we need a new connection to our history. So I'm, you know, peeking at, you know, uh, Thoreau and Emerson and looking at some of those uh, early American writers and um, very inspiring. And also, you know, like I want, I'm thinking the underlying um, message is the meditation piece. Um, and you know, you see the noise with, you know, issues around the police brutality and criminal justice, the noise around the political system, the noise around the coronavirus. It's just so noisy. So I'm, I'm thinking of a a quiet revolution that may be happening in the country, uh, underneath the noise that I think is starting to assemble itself. And I think it is around things like regenerative agriculture where left and right can meet. I think it is around things like um, social and emotional learning where the left and the right can really meet around trauma and form a curriculum skills training, you know, to fill these mid skilled jobs, like try not to get too far left, too far right on any of these issues, but really try to find some common ground that meet the goals of the country around climate education reform, and just like, let's just start moving forward. <laughs> you know, like we don't have to solve all this in, in like one hour or one bill. Um, and I think we all feel that way. Somebody please come fix this. But I actually think like, and it, it hit me more this weekend because I, I did a couple of the marches around the, uh, you know, uh, George Floyd murder. And, and it was amazing. I know there, I know it doesn't always make it on TV, but there were some great marches where the police were participating in the marches. And so the ones around Youngstown and Warren that I went to, 
in both instances, separate women didn't know each other at all. They, um, they were 20 year old black women and they just started the March. They put it on Facebook and we're going to do this. And on it went next thing, you know, the congressman's walking in the March with the chief of police and, and the police are there and walking and it's white working class. You know, you're from Pittsburgh. It's, it was like white working class, black working class, like just how we grew up, you know? And, uh, all there for the cause. And I just thought, man, this is coming together. You know, this is like, I think this is an opening that we did not have six months ago. And so I want the next book, if, if we can, if there's going to be one to like, just try to bring all that together. So that's my hope. So we'll see what happens. You never know. It's a, it's a journey. Every they say every book is like, you're a baby, like a child. (laughs) So the birthing process is a tough one. <laughs> All right. That was Representative Ryan. So uh, politics, what do you think, J.D.? <laughs> well, you know, we, we've, we've talked about this off the air and we kind of touched on a little bit before, before his interview. Um, you know, politics and, and religion, like those types of things, they're, they're fun to talk about. But at the same time, you, you tend to alienate a lot of people when you do. And, and honestly, in listening to him just now, like I couldn't tell you whether he was a Democrat, whether he was a Republican, and, and, and it, it doesn't matter. I mean, in the end, you know, it's all about what kind of person he really is. But, um, you know, I, I've heard so many horror stories, you know, like um, Patterson wrote a book with Bill Clinton. And right now I've got this book coming out with Patterson. And I, I've got reviews coming in already, like on Goodreads, where people are saying, oh, I won't read this because he worked with Clinton you know, like silly stuff like that. Like yeah. people just draw these, these lines. Um, and, and regardless of what side of the aisle you end up on, if, if you comment on something as an author, whether you do it on social media or whether you put it in the text of one of your books, um, you're going to alienate 50% of your audience. Um, so it's, it's one of those things you have to decide as an author, whether or not you even want to do, you know, like, do, do you want to dwell into that at all? Or do you want to just kind of steer clear of it? Um, I, I personally just stay away from it because I just, I don't want the headaches of it. Um, and he brought up, um, and you guys talked on, about uh, Pittsburgh. Um, and it's funny because like I, I lived there, you know, my wife and I moved there a couple of years back um, and we just left, uh, actually it's a year ago this week. Um, we, we didn't see the, the soot building up everywhere, but we heard about <laughs> it from, from all of our neighbors. They, they were telling us like they had to constantly go out and sweep their porch and do this. And it was all over their car like every day. And um, you know, by the time we got there, all those steel mills are, they're still there, but they're all closed. They're all shuttered. Um, so, so we didn't see that, but you know, it, it definitely took a toll on the, the environment and, and that, that area. And, you know, there is a lot or very high occurrence of, of cancer, you know, just in general residence there. So I'm sure it's all, all plays a part. Um, and, and his book, um, honestly, it, it kind of hit home, you know, healthy eating is just so important. I think a lot of people don't realize just how important it really is. Um, when I first met my wife, I, I would, a typical lunch for me was a Kit Kat, you know, washed down with a Pepsi. <laughs> oh my <laughs> not not the most healthy thing in the world and, and my health was kind of going in that direction you know i was on a slightly down downhill you know slide um and she was a vegetarian so she kind of yanked me back in the other direction and now we found a really comfortable middle ground um but it, it's amazing how just changing a, you know tweaking a couple things in your diet can impact virtually every other aspect of your life yeah it, it's so uh it's so overlooked i think for most of us myself included i mean i i spent years, uh, I used to say I, I ate like a teenager. I mean, like you, I, pizzas and subs and like, you know, I, I wouldn't think much about what I ate. And yet when you, when you think about it from a, a rational perspective, you know, of course, what you put in your mouth has to affect your general health. Like, how could it not? 
Um, so I, I love I, I love the book, and I love the fact that that Ryan is really looking at things that used to be on the fringe, you know, like meditation and um, even like veganism or vegetarianism or just healthy eating in general. We're always kind of seen as like the fringe activities, but I think they're they're much more mainstream now. And even if you know 2020 wasn't his year to to stay in the presidential race. I kind of feel like the mainstream is catching up to some of some of his ideas, and so uh, worthwhile conversation. I got a lot of a lot of good nuggets out of it. Well, he's he's a young guy. He's got a lot of time left in his career, and there's there's no telling where it's going to go. But you know, he's kind of covering both bases. You know, the the, the dietary part covers the the body, uh, meditation covers the mind, and and I've been reading quite a bit on meditation lately because I've always been a, a poor sleeper. I tend to get maybe four hours at the most on, at night, and I'll wake up you know at maybe three o'clock in the morning or so, and I'm and I'm wide awake and I'm I'm feel fully rested. Um, but I, I know I actually need more and my, my brain is just going and going and going. So I've been reading a lot of meditation books on ways to kind of rein that in and it, it does help. Um, but it, but it's a lot harder, I think, than people realize and it, it's not meditation isn't quite what people think it is either. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a discipline. It's something you've got to train yourself to do. Um, and I'm, I'm going to strive to try and make something happen there because I, I do feel benefits from it, but it's, it's very difficult. I mean, it's, it's, I think easier to go out and lift weights and exercise and do that. The physical side of that a, a lot more so than it is to, to rein your mind in. Yeah. It's hard to sit by yourself and not think about stuff. Like that's really hard yeah. not to do. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you, um, about one other thing about, uh, uh about Tim Ryan that I, I thought was interesting because you, you've done some co-writing he talked about his process for writing the books and that he has someone he works with and they almost have to do it as a writer's retreat. So what are your thoughts on doing sort of a full immersive, a big batched writing versus doing a little bit every day? Um, well, it's definitely beneficial. When, when I was doing the, the ghostwriting thing, I worked with a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle um, and, and their lives are extremely hectic. You know, when, you know, their phone's ringing off the hook. They've got people coming through the door every two seconds with this and with that. You know, it doesn't matter if they're at home or whether they're at work or they're in Washington or they're back at their, their home base. Um, it's just like that. So I, I totally get why he would want to get away. Um, and, and several of the books that I worked on, we, we did that exact same thing. You know, they didn't tell anybody really where they were going there. You know, one member from their staff knew, you know, in case there was an emergency, but beyond that, nobody did. Nobody knew how to reach them. Um, and, you know, they got there, they took a nice breather, you know, kind of relaxed a little bit. And for the most part, you know, they just told me their story and I tape recorded it and then I went back and wrote it. Um, now, because he's a lot more hands-on, obviously, than that, because um, these people that I worked with, they, they walked away from it, and then they read the finished product and, and made some changes, but he's, he's obviously in the, in, the, in the thick of it, um, and there is a big benefit to that, because if you are getting distracted by a lot of different things, this allows you to, to focus. Um, I, I don't know that I could actually work on something, you know, at, at that level, though, where I could just completely immerse, you know, immerse myself in it. Um, I know Karen Slaughter does that. She's got a cabin um, off in the middle of nowhere, and that's where she actually goes to write her books. She disappears for a couple months out of the year and, and writes a book and then comes home. Um, and then she does the, the marketing and the media side of it and those types of things she does, you know, while she's back at home with her family. But the actual writing, she, she hides somewhere. Um, and a lot of authors do that. Um, I, I think every author should probably try it, you know, especially if you're having trouble focusing or getting things done at home. You know, there's no harm in, in taking a week, you know, going someplace and, and unplugging. 
Um, just unplugging in general, like when I start my day, I, I, the internet is turned off in my office. I, I don't look at email. I don't, my phone doesn't work. None of those things work um, until after I get my, my word count done. Um, and that's where I flip the switch, turn on Wi-Fi and, and you know, kind of check in with the world. Um, and in today's world, it feels a little dangerous because there's so many crazy things going on. Like I feel like I could knock out 2000 words and then realize that, you know, the apocalypse started four hours earlier and I just missed it. <laughs> um, but, but it, it helps you stay focused, you know, especially if you're, you know, like me where you write first thing in the morning. Yeah. I don't think that's a bad idea at all. Uh, I, I, I do something similar to that in that I don't, I don't turn on my phone or internet until I've gotten up, I've meditated, I've done my exercise, I've eaten my breakfast. Uh, and then what I do is I, I clear the decks a little bit. So I'll knock out some email and some things so I don't have to think about them. And then I go into my words. But still, I don't let, I don't let the world decide how I'm going to start my day. Like I start the day how I want to start it. And then, then I bring the other stuff in. So I think there's no, there's no one right way to do it. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think if uh, you, know, you take your most uh, important activity, you prioritize that. And, and that's, that's going to be your focus. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. If, if you're capable of reading your email in the morning and then, you know, going right into writer mode um, without it impacting anything, then it's, then it's not an issue. I, I'm just not like that. If, if I have a problem in my email, I have to solve that problem before I can get on with everything else. And if I do that, sometimes, you know, it's two or three hours later and I just, I don't want to lose that time. I, I know my pr most productive time is, is first thing in the morning. Um, but again, everybody is different. You just got to figure out what works for you. But, you know, don't be afraid to try these different things. That, that's how you're going to learn. Yeah. Otherwise you could spend all your whole morning uh, dealing with distressed book covers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, unfortunately that was one that I, I, I had to take care of. Uh, there was a big order on the, uh, I, was, I, I, I don't want another truck to pull up with, with boxes of perfectly good books. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah. Who, so, all right. Who do we have on um, next week? Yeah. So next week we have uh, Honoré Corder. And Honoré is a hustler in the most positive sense of the word. She is a a uh, fantastic businesswoman, uh, incredible author. She worked with Hal Elrod on the Miracle Morning series. Um, she uh, has done a lot of self-publishing and she's gone. She's done sort of some B2B plays, which is really interesting. Uh, I think a lot of times we think as authors that uh, we're only writing for readers who want books as entertainment. Uh, but Honoré has had some success in writing uh, very specific books for like corporate audiences. And I think we forget about those, those kinds of sales and business models. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to talking with her. She is a, a dynamo, uh, always very gracious with her time. And I think it's going to be a great conversation. I'll definitely have some, some takeaways from that for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right. So to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.